I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton. Down the line, I've got Agnes Frimston. How are you, Agnes? Hello, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very good, yeah. I was very glad to have some rain this weekend. Oh, holiday weekend, wasn't it joyous? Oh, yeah. my goodness. Quenched the thirst of all the plant life around me. Being out in the Absolutely. countryside, you notice the effect of just weeks and weeks and weeks of sun. It's not good. It's not good news. No, and dampens the hay fever. My constant mentioning of my hay fever. And for those <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I've been sitting with wet, like old tea bags on my eyes. It's the only thing that helps. Is that a tried and tested method or is that just Glamorous a frimstonism? A frim fact. No, it's, no, it's genuinely, it's, I think it's tried and tested, but I would recommend. I've never and, thought about doing that before. Yeah. And Pret is back then. Pret's I'm so it. happy. I've had my Pret sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> but, the wait has ended. Not that weight, but yeah. This week, we have done something slightly out of our normal comfort zone. We have a double bill on the same country. So we have two interviews looking at the great state that is Israel. I was lucky enough to speak to Professor Yossi Meckelberg, who is a senior consulting research fellow at the Middle East and North Africa programme and a professor of international relations at Regents University London. Because, I don't know if you've heard, but Netanyahu... Prime Minister of Israel, is on trial, currently going through court proceedings for fraud. And this is a huge deal. (laughs) A leading (laughs) Prime Minister who's potentially might be convicted of three different counts of fraud, which uh, he explains in our interview. And Yossi gives us a brief explanation of when Netanyahu came to power and how linked Israel is as an identity with this huge strong man of a leader that BB is. Mm. Who did you speak to, Ben? Yes, well, I spoke to Galia Pressbar-Nathan and Nama Lutz, who have just written an article for International Affairs at the Chatham House Journal, which is looking excitingly, cannot overstate this, at Eurovision, finally. Oh, my God. We're f- after 55 episodes, we're finally getting to the real meat, the real, the proper, serious, hardcore politics. So, yeah, so two very different interviews this week but we hope that you enjoy them both you enjoy listening so i'm here with professor yossi meckelberg who is senior consulting research fellow at the middle east and north africa program at chatham house and the professor of international relations at regents university london hello yossi hello Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So we're here to have a chat about Netanyahu, who is in the news because he is on trial currently. Could you give us a bit of a brief overview of who Netanyahu is and like when he became leader of Israel? It seems that uh, Netanyahu is always in, in the news for one reason or another. But if you look back, at his life. He was born just when the state of Israel was born, or a year later, 1949. He's 70 years old. He was born already in independent Israel. He's the son of very well-known revisionist historian, Ben Sion uh, Netanyahu. 
He grew up in Israel, served in an elite unit, known as Sayeret Matkal, it's equivalent of the SAS, that both his brother serves in the same unit. And actually it was his other brother that became famous because he was one of those who released the hostages from an airplane, Air France airplane, in Antebe in Uganda, but unfortunately was killed. That was the first steps that Netanyahu entered because he was more in business. He was educated mainly in the, in the United States. He did his, his postgraduate studies there. But after the death of his brother, he entered more into the public domain. Uh, he wrote a book about terrorism and counter-terrorism. He joined the, the Likud party, which is the right-wing uh, party. He was appointed as a, as a deputy consul, in, a consul in, in, in New York. And later, when he really made his name, is as a, an ambassador to the United Nations. That was, uh, he, he speaks perfect English. His ability is a very eloquent uh, person. Uh, the way that he expressed himself, got himself a lot of admirers. And gradually from there, he started to build his political base in Israel fulfilling different positions within, within government. But even when the Likud was seen as, as basically in the canvas and not being able to win an election, he came back into politics after living it for a while and, and gradually building himself into the position of prime minister. He had the first thing to surprisingly win election against Shimon Peres after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. No one expected it to happen. It was a very small margin. And his first time, his first period as, as prime minister was far from being successful. There was no any coherent policies, neither on, on international affairs, relations with the Palestinians, nor on domestic issues. And he lost the election to Ehud Barak. But this came something that is very characteristic of Netanyahu. He never gives up. He has hunger for politics that no any other, uh, other politician in Israeli politics. It's maybe the first prime minister, Ben-Gurion, had such hunger for, for politics. So before we move on to last year's elections and the trial, I just wanted to ask you, how much do you think is modern Israel's identity tied up with Netanyahu as an individual. And he's been there for so long as a leader. And here comes, you know, the second period of, he, of, his, of his premiership. He lost the election and stayed in the opposition for a number of years, even left politics for a while, and came back very strongly after, and here is the irony, after Ehud Olmert was indicted for corruption, ended as well in, in, in jail, was convicted, and since then, 2009, until now 11 years, he is consecutively in power. And no doubt, he shapes modern Israel. In many ways, modern Israel is created and shaped in his, in, in his image. If you had to pin down Netanyahu's vision of Israel in, say, five points, what would you say they were? I think, let, let, me, let me start, because also he's, he's the longest serving longest serving uh, prime minister now, even more than Ben-Gurion. I think if I look at the main, main issues, A, economically, a very touch-the-right type of ideology. He believes in free markets in, in the most radical way, and that's the way 
when he was finance minister and as prime minister, he directs uh, Israel. On international affairs, he always see the relations with the United States that is that, that they're crucial for the survival of Israel. The other thing that he sees himself is in his own image, and I think it evolved along the years, he sees himself as the protector, as the savior of Israel. This is his, his legacy. On the other hand, he's also a very cautious politician, actually, and very hesitant politician. You have to differentiate between the rhetoric and actually what he does on the ground, very, very, very gradually. And the last point, when it comes to the relations with the Palestinians, which is very crucial for Israel long-term, I think, survival and well-being, he doesn't believe in the two-state solution. He will do anything to prevent a two-state solution. Definitely, on the way that at the end of this process, a viable Palestinian state would come in, into, into being. And just in case some of our listeners don't know what, that means a two-state solution you're talking about a recognition of Palestine well if you go back to the, the partition plan of 1947 is the idea that in this piece man, what known as mandatory Palestine which is between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea what was Palestine before 1948 there is space for two nations and that's to be divided in one way or another between a Jewish state and an Arab state, which is a Palestinian state. Without getting into the historical details, post-Oslo agreement of 1993, the trajectory was that within five years, a Palestinian state would be established. This never happened. And instead of that, the conflict continued, including the second intifada. But the idea is that self-determination for Zionist movement, the Jewish people, and self-determination for the Palestinians. I'm going to ask you a few more questions about that later on. But there were elections last year which caused some issues. Did Netanyahu win them? Well, there were three elections within uh, 11 months. The Netanyahu government collapsed in December 2018. Why did his government collapse? It collapsed mainly because uh, one of the partners in, in government, Victor Lieberman from Israel Beitenu, that has a long-running feud with Netanyahu, decided to quit the government. He put it in more ideological terms, but he suspected that with the corruption allegations against Netanyahu, this was the beginning of the end of Netanyahu, and he can at least gain some of the votes that's usually go to the Likud party, he would make his party stronger. It was a calculated move, which eventually didn't pay off, but for a while looked like a wise move. In the following elections, as in Israeli election, no party in the history of the country ever won absolute majority. No one ever got 61 members of Knesset out of the 120. And in more recent years, the biggest party, the will get not more than 35, 36, which means automatically you need to negotiate with another two, three, sometimes four parties to build a coalition. It proved to be almost impossible. So in Israel, you look, instead of just one party, you look at blocks of parties. Either it was regarded as the right or the center-left. And for in the first two elections, it was impossible 
the third election, it's actually looked as if the center and the center left would be able to form a coalition. But Benny Gantz, who is the leader of Blue and White, what I see is got cold feet and decided to split his own party and sign a coalition agreement with Netanyahu. And now he is actually quite a stable, at least for a while, government with the support of 73 members of Knesset. So how did that leave Israel as a result? I think Israel is, is divided more than ever. Netanyahu has been in power for so long. Has he always been very popular and it suddenly dipped? Or where has the change come from? I think, first of all, every leader after a while loses its popularity. And, and I think what happens to Netanyahu, it's what actually Lord Acton said many, many years ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think Netanyahu is just another example of this. I think at the end of the day, it's not that the base supports Netanyahu, and we saw it time and again. He has a base that supports him. What happens, happens in the margins. And no doubt that on the, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, there was no progress. But most importantly, Netanyahu got embroiled in, in corruption, allegedly. That's what we're going to come on to. So he's currently on trial. What's he accused of? Well, there are three cases, known as case 1000, 2000, and 4000. 3000 is still under investigation and to do with purchasing submarines with Germany, but he's not indicted for this. 1000, case 1000 is about accepting presents, cigars, champagnes, and other luxury goods, and the allegation that he got it for in exchange of favors for some media moguls, people with, with economic interest. And at the time that he was also the, the communication media uh, minister. And as we know, any change in regulation can benefit people that work in the media. These Israeli companies or American or? Well, they're not, they're not all. One is Israeli, but he's a Hollywood producer, quite a well-known, Arnold Milchen. But there are other more minor people that were involved because at the end of the day, when we are talking about cigars and champagne and other luxury goods, we are talking probably around $120,000, dollars uh-huh. of this present. So it's not minor of accepting a cigar here or there or a bottle of champagne. We are talking about cases. What year was this alleged to have happened in? Throughout his ministerial life and throughout his, his premiership. So it happened throughout, uh, uh, throughout the years of in office, yes. That's, that's one. Allegation number two, which is, 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 is serious, Netanyahu, and by the way, his family, has this obsession that the media is against them, and unfairly so. He doesn't see it as kind of legitimate criticism of his policies. So he tried to all the time to find a way to get better coverage within, within in the media. One of these ways was that one of his supporters in the United States who is into the gambling business in Las Vegas founded for him a newspaper which called Israel Ayom, Israel Today, which is basically the mouthpiece of Netanyahu. But the problem for the other newspaper that it was distributed free. It's a free newspaper which as a result damaged the business model of other newspapers. They sold less and less newspapers. So allegedly, 
which the meeting is not allegedly, what happened in the meeting might constitute bribe. According to this meeting, and there is a recording of it, the publisher of Yediot Achronot, which is one of the major newspapers in Israel, met with Netanyahu, and Netanyahu offered him, according to the indictment, to pass a law that will close any free newspapers, or disallow free newspapers, in exchange to, for better coverage in the Yediot Achronot, in this newspaper. The, general, the police and the attorney general said that this constitutes bribery offering a bribe and accepting a bribe. And of course, if you think about from the sense of freedom of speech, this is very serious. When we buy newspapers, we assume that the reason that something is published because it's as a result of the honest opinion of the newspaper, of the journalist, and not because someone was paid bribe. And very similar is case 4000 that he negotiated with another media mogul, Charles Adolovich, is who owned Bezek and had and part of it is a website called Walla News, something similar to that in exchange for changing regulation vis-a-vis the electronic media, which of course allegedly would benefit this businessman to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of million shekels. So these are the three allegations that in legal term allegedly constitute fraud, bribery, and breach of trust. As a result of the latest elections. Netanyahu is still currently uh, Prime Minister of Israel, but he's on trial. Has this ever happened before? Never happened before that a sitting Prime Minister will also face the courts at the same time. In the case of Ehud Olmert, he resigned before the trial started. And again, one of the ironies, it was Benjamin Netanyahu. And this is the art of him changing his opinions according to what suits him. He said to Ed Olmert at the time, running a state like Israel is a too serious business to do it at the same time than defending yourself in court. Prove yourself innocent and come back to politics. Obviously, when the same things apply to Netanyahu, he changed completely his tune. But this is unprecedented in the history of Israel that you do both. You're running the country and at the same time face a serious trial. What happens if he's found guilty? That changes everything. Because one of the anomalies in Israel, constitutions in Israel doesn't have a written constitution. If you are indicted and face trial as a minister, this High Court of Justice decided many years ago that you have to quit. But not the prime minister, which probably the listeners of this podcast say, how can it be the case? because the prime minister is in charge of ministers, so what is right for ministers to do, quit the government. But this is where the law stands. And when some organizations appealed to this uh, High Court of Justice, this is impossible, this is not right, it's unethical. And a panel of 11 judges decided this is where the law stands, and yes, is is the prime minister, and there is no... Within the law, there is no legal ban on a prime minister to stay as prime minister, and this even before we formed the, the, the government two weeks ago, to stand trial and be a sitting uh, prime minister at the same time. And is that loophole, was that an oversight or was that a conscious decision when, when the law was made? Because like, as you say, that does sound odd. I think some people had in mind and 
I, I, I spoke to a politician that at the time supported it because the idea that you know allegations against prime minister will come to court, it might be a way to get rid of a prime minister. And some a very progressive member of, of Knesset that I had a conversation recently told me, I never thought about this scenario because I would have never had supported it at the time. So sometimes it starts also, some with sinister ideas and some actually come from the best of intentions, but the end result of it is a prime minister that is using the power of the office in order to incite against the justice system, against the attorney general, against the prosecutor, intimidating the, the judges. And that's what we are going to see all the way through. So you say that there's this odd loophole, which means that he can remain prime minister but stand trial. Can he remain prime minister if he's convicted? No. If he's convicted, he has to resign. Uh-huh. From then on, become a convicted criminal. Uh-huh. Okay, other side. What happens if he's found innocent? Well, life goes on. I think if he's acquitted, found innocent, then he stays as prime minister, though he has an agreement now with Benny Gantz that in 18 months, they will alternate. And this is an interesting point here. To avoid the situation that in 18 months, Gantz now is the deputy prime minister. So he's not immune from staying in, in, in his position, even if he's facing a facing trial. The deputy is not. The prime minister is. So in order that in 18 months, if the trial is still going on, that Netanyahu won't have to quit the government to resign, they call themselves not a a prime minister and deputy, but alternate prime minister. And if you're an alternate prime minister, allegedly, then the court will have to decide at one point or another, are in in the same level. And if he becomes the alternate prime minister, uh, would he still stay in government? On the other hand, if he's convicted, the pressures will be on him to resign. That's what the law says. But if you look at what Netanyahu is trying to do, even before he entered his first session in, in, of, this, of this trial, he already delegitimized the court case and the judges and the entire justice system. And he tried to say that what the justice system is trying to do is to distort the will of the people. The people wanted me, they voted for me, I got more votes than anyone else, and some prosecutors with agenda are trying to distort it. That will be the line all the way. So if he's acquitted, there is no issue. He's an innocent man. If he's convicted, it's the deep state conspire against him. And then maybe he wants people to go to the street, take the streets, demonstrate against it. Who knows what's next? I mean, on that note, I want to ask you where public opinion is lying. Is he still popular? Do people think that this is all a, a stitch up or do they think he's guilty? I think it's really divided. And I think the three elections showed it. I think it's divided between three. The one, they think it's a complete stitch-up, and this is, as Netanyahu presented, it's not against me, Netanyahu, it's against the right in Israel. Those who hate the right victimize me because they know I'm your leader and they want to get their way politically. Then there is the second that believe that actually, yes, he took bribes, he breached trust, there was fraud there, but they say, he's a good prime minister. You know what? This is the price worth paying. And I heard it from people in Israel. I heard it from taxi drivers in Israel. Yeah, so what? So he took a few cigars, had champagne. It's a tough job. You need it. 
And when I asked him, why won't he pay for it? He said, why should he? He's a prime minister. So this is the one that are very forgiving. And then there is the, 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 the others that say, A, they're, they're, yes, they're opposing politically, but to say that this is not an ethical behavior of a prime minister, and they're convinced that he is corrupt. So I think this is the, the three groups. So you, you touched on, when talking about whether or not he would be found guilty, you touched on the idea of his sort of successor, but how many years can a prime minister of Israel serve? You know, is there a limit on how long he can be in power? Or is he going to be here forever? In Israeli politics, prime minister, only deaths will do a spout. You can go as long as, as people vote for you. There is no limitation. Obviously, he's the longest serving now, around 14 years. But having said that, usually it's, it's much shorter. But legally, there is no time limit. He has been there for a very long time now, and his identity seems to be very much tied up with the identity of Israel on the global stage. What do you think a post-Nesnahu Israel might look like? I think it's very important to recognize that as time goes by, the world almost follows his approach to leadership because he's almost fitting the zeitgeist. Because when he started, for instance, Obama was in, in, in power in the United States, you have different leaders. In a world in which you have Trump, Bolsonaro, Orban, and this is just the short list, he fits perfectly. This is part of the same rhetoric. It's about nationalism. It's about patriotism. It's, it's, it's about right-wing politics. It's about, you know, whatever I say must be right, but even if there is no evidence to this. Incitement against minorities is completely acceptable. So in this sense, he's part of the zeitgeist, though he was behaving like this even before. Now, we look at, for instance, the, the, the Israeli economy. On macro level, it does well. But if you look at the gap between rich and poor, it's the worst ever. Israel is one of the worst countries when it comes to the Gini coefficient and comes to in the OECD country. So when it comes to the, more, the richest countries, the rich countries in the world, Israel is doing well when it comes to income per capita, the GDP, but the divide is massive including more than 20% of people living under the poverty line, 30% of children living under the poverty line. And that's why I referred earlier to a very Thatcherite approach to the economy. So the high-tech is doing well, the pharmaceutical, the agro-technology, and the rest, but the division. Inside Israel, the incitement against the Arab minority, the media, the left, everyone that opposed it, they're not just rivals. It's not just people that you don't have an agreement with them. It's total incitement against human rights organizations. And this is this will stay as a legacy there of total divisions of delegitimizing, for instance, 20% of the population, which is which is Palestinian, Arab Israel is Palestinians. Delegitimization of the left and parts of the media. And I think by that also risking violence within the country. A further legacy is of course that he might want to hammer the last nail in, in the already existing coffin of the peace process on a viable Palestinian state. If the annexation is, will take place, and from what we hear, it's the, the, a bill will be tabled, Knesset, already in July. This is the beginning of the end of negotiating peace on, on, on the basis of two-state solution. Not that there is many, much chance of this happening anyway, but this 
symbolically, legally, we start to cross the third of the West Bank is officially, legally annexed, at least according to, to Israel. And this is, this is a legacy that also will create friction with other parts of the Middle East. Uh, Jordan is already warning that it will have to react to this. The budding relations with the, the Gulf countries, that actually Netanyahu, one of those who developed them, then it might damage relations with the EU. We heard from the foreign ministers, the EU foreign minister already condemnation. We'll see how the EU is going to react to that. So there will be a repercussion. And maybe one more thing about the relations with Iran. He looks at the relations with Iran in a very binary way. And he doesn't see any opening. And in this sense, he, he sings from the same hymn sheet or the, with a Trump administration or the Trump administration see it eye to eye with, with Netanyahu, that Iran is an existential threat not only to Israel, to world peace, and there is no diplomatic opening. And I think this is part of not only legacy for Israel, but also for the regional and beyond the policy towards Iran. There's been a clear rise in anti-Semitism in many European countries over the last few years. Do you think that rise has changed the way that the Israeli government has dealt with Europe? It's a good question, and I'm not so sure I have, I, I have the answer. I think for Netanyahu, because he's very America-focused, it's almost, again, Netanyahu in a very, some will say clever, some will say devious way, he always needs to find a reason why his policies that are very rigid are viable. So if you said, oh, whenever the European criticize me, it's because they are anti-Semites, not because they disagree with me, not because actually they might think that actually a compromise with the Palestinians is better for me, or maybe compromise on nuclear agreement with Iran actually serves the international community in Israel, he will use it as a way to retain power and by portraying everyone as an enemy. He developed in the Israeli psyche, and this is the kind of his, his hardcore base, that the world is against us. He plays on this sentiment of anti-Semitism, of hatred. And then, if this is the case, he's the protector. He's the savior of the Jewish people. And uh, politically, the reality is already the longest-serving uh, prime minister. It worked for him politically. I don't think it works for Israel. Some of the criticism that comes from Europe is completely legitimate. What is not legitimate is anti-Semitism. These are two different things. This is a difficult topic, obviously, but do you think that in some ways Netanyahu has combined or collated criticism of his government with anti-Semitism? Th- again, this is the, the three things that need to be separated. Israel was established on the basis of a UN resolution and calling for any harm to the state of Israel, of course, is illegitimate. Criticizing of Israeli policies is legitimate as criticizing any government. They might be right, they might be wrong, but they're completely legitimate. Definitely the occupation of Palestinian territories. But any, as any other policies, we are allowed to criticize. And the third thing is try to equate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is, is wrong and actually cause, in my mind, huge harm to the genuine fight against anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is any form of racism it does exist, and it has to be fought against with all the power that we have. But not every criticism of Israel, even if it's the Jewish state, equates anti-Semitism. 
Netanyahu has, through his own creation, but also through the circumstances that he has been placed in, become the figurehead for a nation that often feels criticised and under threat and challenged. Can you think of a historical example of a similar figure? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you something. When I don't see him as a figure because he's, he's a divisive. Because many of the leaders that swell figureheads, yes, they always have people that resist them, but they have the real majority, substantial majority, within the population that supported them. I don't think Netanyahu enjoys it. I think he actually divided the society almost equally in the middle between those who really want him out and those who support him for whatever reason. So I think he will never get to the kind of the Ben-Gurion state of a figurehead or of a father figure for, for the nation, maybe in his own head, but at the end of the day, the way he behaves. And even I think there is there's a majority there that, that believes that he also looked after himself, including in this corruption allegation. And it's difficult to know how history will judge anyone. But if I think if I look what might be his legacy, it's not a legacy that will last in a positive way in, in Israel history. And he's charismatic. And people say in, in private, he's, he's a charming person and definitely understand politics more than anyone else. He could use it to bring people together. He could bring, for instance, the, the, the Israeli-Palestinians to be part of governing the country and not portray them as enemies of the country, not try to destroy the justice system and, and threaten them. And I think at the end of the day, the, the way history would look at Netanyahu would be in a very negative way. So the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, which is a Palestinian-led campaign, has been getting more and more attention internationally. What impact do you think campaigning organisations like them have had on how Israel is received internationally? I'm, I'm going to say something which won't make many people happy. I think actually the BDS as a movement uh, failed completely. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's too ideological and they don't know exactly what's their policy. And it's a mix of, of people that don't want you know, to see the existence of Israel altogether and people that would like to see the end of the occupation. And they definitely don't have a strategy. And I think mainly they get publicity because Israel is so bothered fighting against them for the same reason that they're doing that with anti-Semitism. Not because they fight only the cause itself, because it justifies its own behavior, or, or many times its bad behavior in the occupied territories or blockading Gaza. I think that at the end of the day, if anyone talks about say, BDS, and I don't see the value as such of BDS, and definitely not, they're not all the same boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Depends which one is what, and how do you do that, and how specific they are. Uh, they are supposed to lead to, to achieve something. They have to, to have an objective. And I think it's a very ideological one. And also the response from Israel is overreaction and gives it more, more credence than, than it deserves. So, Yossi, you've been wonderful. Last question for you. Because life is a bit depressing at the moment, so I'm always trying to end on a cheery note. Okay. What is your favourite fact about Israel that you don't think people know? It's because it's in, in a strange way, people know about Israel and heard about Israel in completely disproportion to how small is the country in terms of territory 
and, and population. But I must admit, as someone comes from, from Tel Aviv, basically, is that despite all of the troubles, despite all the issues, it's one of the fun places to go and visit. It's a place that you come there and you can have great time, enjoy yourself. And the other things, and I must admit, as someone that is, as I think you know, highly critical of Israel, yes, I will be told off, sometimes not in a nice way, but I can still say it. As in long as he stays here, I can go back and visit in Tel Aviv, have a great time, and not only in Tel Aviv, in other places, in this beautiful state, and have this argument and still stay friends with, with people. I think it's great things to have. I was looking for glib, and you gave me earnest and genuine, so thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I can tell you that I, I can tell you where is my favorite falafel place. But <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll yeah. spare you this. What we should say is, um, if you are listening, you should follow Professor Yossi Mekelberg on Twitter. Uh, his handle is at Y-M-E-K-E-L-B-E-R-G. And I'm sure if they tweet you, you'll tell them your favourite falafel place. No? Thank you so much, Yossi. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So now I'm joined internationally, as, as I'm getting used to, by two recent authors to international affairs. I have with me Galia Presbarnathan and Nama Lutz, who are both working in the International Relations Department at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And we're here today to talk about a recent article that they've just published with us in the May issue of International Affairs, titled The Multi-Level Identity Politics of the 2019 Eurovision Song Contest. I'm very excited about this. We've never covered Eurovision before. Yeah, I don't even know where to start. But let's get going with our basic terms, I suppose. And first off, of course, Galia and Nama, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. We're thinking about the Eurovision Song Contest today in terms of mega events. So Galia, could you maybe just begin by saying what you mean by mega events and why you feel followers of politics and global affairs should be interested in them? Well, I think first, thanks for having us. When we talk about mega events, we talk about these events that have this really huge, large-scale media exposure, things like Olympic Games, the you know, FIFA World Cup, also I think the, the Eurovision Song Contest. So these are the events that have, I think probably the most important thing is their huge media exposure. The fact that they're planning for these events, also take time. So the media exposure is also not just this like one-time event when it happens, but usually it can be a year ahead when we talk about Eurovision or four years if we're talking Olympic Games. So we have this large chunk of time where there's this amazing spotlight on a specific state that is going to host the event. And then we have, you know, the climax where the event is actually taking place. The Eurovision Song Contest last year there were about 182 million viewers. So this is impressive. It's important for economic reasons, but I think for people who are interested in politics like us and not so much the, you know, the economic implications of hosting a mega event, mm. I think it's, I would say this, it's, it's a really important thing, both for states hosting the events, for various non-state actors that have issues with that state, and for academics who wish to study the politics surrounding this. 
And if you're not an academic or a politician or an activist and just interested in the world politics, I think mm -hmm. just zooming in on one event, like the hosting of the 2019 Eurovision Song Contest, really gives you like an opening to see the multiple level identity politics that's taking place around the event between states, within states, between states and various non-state actors. So actually these events are important for the states who wish to host them because it's an opportunity for them to expose themselves to the world. We talk about this concept of you know, soft power, how you actually improve your image internationally, how you win hearts and minds. You show people who know maybe nothing about you that you are a modern state, you're a liberal state. So there's clear international audience for the state here, but also usually host states are doing this also for their own domestic purposes. And people, the audience within the States is also interested in getting this international acknowledgement. So at different levels here for the host, this is an important opportunity to uh, increase her, its, whatever you want to call the state, its esteem, its reputation, and also internally to sort of negotiate its own identity, to flag its nation internally and externally. I guess on the other hand, if you have issues with a state, if you are another state competing with it, say geopolitically, or if you're just an activist group that a human rights activist group or an environmentalist group that has issues with the policies of the host state, this is also an opportunity because it's such a large scale event and you as well can get this amazing media exposure. So the event itself becomes a site of contestation of all sorts. So if you're trying to contest the state, to criticize its policies, you have several options here that become very attractive. You can either use the event itself to name and shame that nation. This is Nama's dissertation project. And you can do this because the audience is so broad and you can do this over time because it's not just a single event. On the other hand, you can also do whatever you can to actually deny the stage from that state to begin with by calling to boycott the event. And we don't need to talk only about Israel, you know, think about other, uh, you know, the, the Qatar World Cup that is about, supposed to take place in 2022 and already has generated all sorts of various political criticism. So this is definitely a really, really attractive site for politics, for various actors. So if you're interested in politics, this is one cool place to look at. And you can hear music, which is sometimes good, sometimes, well, it's music. It's <laughs> It's an experience. <laughs> uh, thank you for that introduction. Nama, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about Israel's involvement with Eurovision up to now. I have to confess in my ignorance, and this is probably quite a revealing comment sitting here in the UK, I didn't realise how long Israel had been a part of the competition. So could you maybe tell us a bit about how Israel has historically placed the importance of Eurovision? Well, Israel has been participating in the Eurovision since 1973. It actually won the competition three times. It won in 1978. And then while hosting it, it won the competition again. But it didn't host it uh, next year. It uh, was in The Hague instead. And then it uh, won again in uh, 1998 and hosted in 1999. So this was actually the fourth win for Israel, the 2018 win of 
Elzilai. I think that much like Galia was talking about the opportunity through mega events to negotiate identity, Israel's involvement with the Eurovision has a lot to do with its identity as a part of Europe in general. The idea of the European values of the Eurovision, we talk about it quite a lot in our article about the liberal values represented in the Eurovision, the LGBTQ-friendly approach of the Eurovision and the very narrative, the aesthetics of the Eurovision in that sense have been something that Israel has participated quite actively in. In fact, in 1998, when Israel won the competition, it was with uh, singer Dana International, who is a transsexual performer. And hosting the event the next year, the following year, 1999, uh, brought to the forefront the question of Israel's religious identity versus the Eurovision and its very liberal and progressive and sexually progressive forefronted by Dana International, who obviously was a major part of the event. So Israel's history and its involvement with the Eurovision is quite significant in that sense, in Eurovision and its Europeanness. I would also say that one interesting aspect of Israel's involvement in the Eurovision and as a sign of its Europeanness is it's also as Israel's difficult history with Europe. If you look at 1983 in Munich, we sent off a Chaza. And on the, in the ground in, in Munich, she was singing about uh, the Israeli, the Jewish pride in a sense. And that also was an historically very emotional moment, I think, for Israeli audiences. So on one hand, the participation in the Eurovision over the years was a place to negotiate Israel's identity as liberal, as a part of the European neighborhood as opposed to the Middle Eastern neighborhood. On the other hand, it also brought to light some of the difficulties it has with this European identity, both in terms of are we liberal, are we not liberal, and both in terms of history and the hard history that Israel has with Germany specifically, but also in, in the larger context, most of Europe. And now to bring us up to the 2019 contest, in your article, you go into various discussions of the kind of run-up to the event taking place itself and how various domestic agendas were being implicated in this in this hosting of it. I just wondered, Galia, maybe you could tell us a bit about the politics around the event and in the lead up to it taking place. I think, you know, if I were to pick up where Nama stopped the story of the history of Israel and the Eurovision, I think what became unique with this specific year is that uh, unlike winning in 78, now Israel in general, I think, has been sensing this increasingly critical international public opinion following, you know, what's happening or actually what's not happening in with regards to the, you know, the non-existent peace process of Israel and, and the Palestinians and the growing activities of groups uh, which, you know, associated with, like the, the BDS uh, movement that are actually calling for the delegitimation of the state of Israel as such. This is a highly debated issue. It's not what we want to talk about, but I think it's extremely important to understand that when Israel win, when, when Neta Barzilai wins the, uh, the contest in Israel, within our government, this is perceived as a victory over this delegitimation campaign. So that's like the general context of this the immediate reactions to the victory of Neta Barzilai. 
And everyone in Israel is very happy about this. The hosting of, of the event then in 2019 is perceived as part of this big national effort to debunk this uh, delegitimization campaign. However, within Israel, you actually see very clearly these two different camps that are happy about hosting the event, but somewhat for different reasons and with like a different tone. And what we try to show in the article is that you can talk, again, this is very broad, you know, you can talk about two discourses in, in Israeli society that reflect two different components of Israeli identity. They're not mutually exclusive, but there's an inherent tension between them. And one of them is the more ethno-national identity. This talk about Jewish par the particularities of the Jewish identity, being alone in the world, always on guard. This is something that has become much more dominant in Israeli society. It's a process that probably started already after the 1967 war. So this is like one dominant identity component that I think is reflected very strongly in our current right-wing government. And on the other side, there's another component that's much more liberal, cosmopolitan, often associated with the left in Israel. And again, this is, you know, very, very rough the way I'm describing this. This component, the group that actually sort of feels that these are the main values that we should be flagging to the world. And I remind you that this is the point of the mega event. You know, this is your opportunity to show who you are. But if we're debating amongst ourselves who we are, then this is going to come up here as well. And this is actually what we're following. So this more cosmopolitan liberal approach had a different view of the meaning of hosting the, the Eurovision. The more nationalist component of identity, this camp, which was voiced initially by many government officials, very clearly describe this as the victory over those who want to harm Israel. And this came across very clearly for, you know, someone who's not studying identity politics with the initial debate on where to host the competition. Initially, the government really wanted to host competition in Jerusalem, capital of Israel, according to the Israeli government. And this was contested by various actors, also by the, the, the EBU, who was, that was sort of concerned about Jerusalem being a contentious and a divisive place to host competition. So the competition was really between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. This was not merely a matter of, you know, location or even just, you know, city politics, because Tel Aviv also stands as a symbol for this liberal cosmopolitan values that are part of what Israel is. Mm. Tel Aviv is considered like the queer capital, very cosmopolitan, very friendly to tourists, and also actually much easier to host an event like this there. So what we see in Israeli politics early on in competition is really this debate between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which is a debate about location, but also a debate about the correct framing of the event and what it is that we actually want to, to show to, to the world. Eventually, the Tel Aviv discourse wins. The event takes place in Tel Aviv, not in Jerusalem. And it's an extremely cosmopolitan, liberal you know, production, if you've, if you've seen it. But it does expose, in many ways, the serious gaps within Israeli society, this, the divisions within Israel about who we are and what is important for us to show 
to the rest of the world. It's not something that got resolved through this hosting of this competition or that led to greater national, you know, union or something. So, yeah, absolutely. Nama, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I think that one of the ways you can see how interconnected it all is, is looking really at the tweets and the Facebook posts of the ministers and the members of Knesset uh, from the right and from the left wing to show how much of this is as opposed to those who are criticizing us. We are going to do it. In, in Hebrew, there's a word, davka. It's um, despite of them and sort of kind of because of their resistance, we're going to do it to show them. Uh, we're going to do it in Jerusalem. And uh, one of the, the very next day after the victory was also, it just happened to coincide with the National Jerusalem Celebration Day. Oh. Uh, and it also happened to be the day in which the embassy of, of the United States in Jerusalem opened. So it was a very big political event and a very joyous event for those who are more on the nationalist of us against the world viewpoint. And one of the quotes from the from Prime Minister Netanyahu on that day uh, in the opening of the embassy was, those who didn't want Jerusalem in the Eurovision are going to get the Eurovision in Jerusalem. So this really comes to show how much of it is us versus the world, one kind of narrative versus the other narrative that is more, we are a part of Europe, we are just like you, see how much we're just like you, and therefore we should have the competition in Tel Aviv. And even though the event itself did happen in, in Tel Aviv, you can see, first of all, through the aesthetics of it, that some of the narrative of the nationalists did come in. But on the other hand, we see that in the end, ministers were quite detached from it. We also see politically how important this event was, bigger than the narrative of, of the nationalist uh, view, because of the attempts the government has made to make it happen, to depoliticize it, to step back from the political demands of it being in Jerusalem, for example, or even of separating the Israel broadcast company from the government. There was an attempt to pass a law to separate it, to not allow it to broadcast news, for example. And this was because of protest from the EBU and with the background of the competition, this was dropped. That's really interesting. I just wondered if either of you had any thoughts on how the organizers of Eurovision react to these sorts of politicizations. Because I mean, they must have this wherever the contest is hosted in whichever country has won. There must be different sort of competing interests and biases or agendas that are trying to be put across. Is that something that you feel that the Eurovision central organizers take into account? Do they get involved in any of these debates or do they just kind of let it happen? I think it's not the first time that the Eurovision has happened in a politically uh, complex arena exactly. and area. There has been the competition in Ukraine before, there has been, and then in Russia. So it has been problematic in the past. And I think the basic European Broadcasting Union's choice is to kind of take a depoliticized stance. Of course, that's not really possible because when you have the competition somewhere, it's going to be political. I mean, I think the irony here is this, the Eurovision to begin with is, you know, a positive political project. You know, it's a project that's, that began as part of this 
also political endeavor to unite Europe to make sure there's no big war again in Europe. So it's depoliticizing in order to advance a larger political vision. So to begin with, there's like this tension, but EBU, because almost in any hosting states, well, I don't know about the Netherlands, I'm sure there's something there also, but uh, in, in so many cases, you do have various types of, of political issues. The EBU stance has been to be just extremely repetitive in using just the same language over and over again, claiming this is, you know, a non-political entertainment event to celebrate diversity through music. That's pretty much it. They were very, very strict with instructions they gave to various national broadcasting services on how to deal with this. So the message sort of trickles down. They were also very strict at the beginning with Israel in terms of Israeli initial attempts to create a higher sort of political profile for the, for the event. So it began with their unease about hosting the event in Jerusalem. We don't really know what exactly happened behind the scenes that pushed for the Tel Aviv decision, but I, I assume that the EBU was somehow sort of behind the, behind the scenes there. So they were very strict at the beginning, they were very helpful, I think, throughout this year when you had all the national competitions and pretty much helping sort of backing the national broadcasting services who had to deal with the same criticism that they were backing them by claiming that this is a non-political event. So obviously, I think for most people, it's obvious that this is, this is an entertainment event that has clear political implications as well. Okay, by hosting it in Israel, you are willing to accept all sorts of things. So it is political, but it's very convenient also for the various states participating in their national broadcasting services and the performers themselves to actually use the EBU rhetoric and say, look, you know, we know everyone knows this is not a political event. I'm here to sing. I'm not saying that they don't really believe this, but the fact that the EBU is standing behind all of this, stressing this is a non-political event, makes it easier for everyone to sort of cheat a bit, I guess, and say this is a non-political event, which in a way is, I think, a good thing because if you accept the initial sort of Eurovision vision of celebrating diversity through music, which we can be cynical about and we can actually also take more seriously. This may be a, a question that seems a little tangential, but I was just wondering, talking about the, the kind of political dynamics within Eurovision, maybe this is just, again, coming from the UK, where we very rarely get any votes at all. But there always seems to be these kind of regional blocks of countries in Europe that kind of agree to vote for each other or support each other. I just wondered if you knew, how does that normally play out with Israel? Do they have a kind of Eastern Mediterranean block that votes for each other or is it just... I mean, that's part of our problem, the self-proclaimed problem that we don't have our block. The fact that we are in the competition to begin with, you know, mm. suggests that our natural block, which is in the Middle East, is just not there. But I think very often in Israel, people have politicized the analysis of the voting. So when we got votes, it was because the song was really good. And when we didn't get votes, it was because, you know, various states had issues with us as, as Israel. It was an easy, I think, way to, 
to explain why we don't get votes. But obviously we are not part of this, you know, the voting bloc game in Europe where you get, you know, Eastern European states voting for each other or Israel remains an outsider in that sense. I guess like Australia, but Australia can't host, so it's not that crucial to win. But uh, yeah, so we're not really part of that bloc game, but I think people try to sort of make a connection between the international political atmosphere, whether we're, you know, at what point we are at in terms of military operations, the peace process, 78 is right, you know, we're the peace with Egypt, mm. which is why I think the Neta Vazilai victory in 2018 was, was especially interesting, given that the political environment was not very hospitable mm. to Israel at, at the time. I just wondered then if if we could just talk a little bit about the reception of this, of how the event played out, but also you've talked about this tension between these two agendas of a more kind of liberal, we're part of Europe, open country aspect, and then this more kind of defiant us and them aspect as well. Do you have any sense of whether these messages came across to the audience that they were hoping to reach? I think it's a bit difficult to, to say. It's not... Mm. It would be an interesting question to research about reception, actually, about which messages get across. Mm. What I do know is that there have been two different types of objections or, or criticism, two ways to, to express objections to Israel and its policies through the Eurovision. And that's maybe something that we can talk about a little bit there, but through the mega event, because when we're dealing with the mega event as a way to pose policies, we get a lot of screen time. So we can get a lot of screen time by saying we don't participate in this big event by calling to boycott, or we can make use of the screen time by saying that we use the screen time, we go up and we show ourselves and there using the stage, we express our objections. And that's what really happened, I think, in, in the 2019 Eurovision. And there, I think we can talk more about success or insuccess. Of course, we can't talk about reception. We can't talk about how much of it got through. What we can talk about is that despite the calls to boycott, in the end, all the countries that were supposed to participate have participated, with the one exception of Ukraine, but that had nothing to do with the calls for boycott. So in that sense, we can say the calls to boycott the Eurovision 2019 were not successful. Now, the calls to boycott were on three levels. They were to the national broadcasters, they were to the individual artists as well, and they were in general to societies from which performers were sent. And I think on all levels, in the end, no artist has cancelled, no state has cancelled, and, and there were 182 million viewers, more or less. So in that sense, it was unsuccessful. On the other hand, the stage time and the screen time received both by Iceland's representatives to the Eurovision and by Madonna and her singers wearing Israeli and Palestinian flags and hugging each other in the intermission act. Both got a lot of press, at least. So there was a lot of talk about them, whether or not it had any effect afterwards on people, whether or not people has, have changed their positions. That's kind of hard to tell. I agree with Nama that I think probably for me, one of the interesting things to follow after this uh, event is really what is the best way to express criticism, whether it's through interaction. When you come like Hatari, you know, they say clearly do not support the policies of the Israeli government. We will come, we will sing our song and we will show 
we will protest one way or another. They kept us on edge, you know, for a very long time. Or you try to actually boycott the whole thing. And it seems like the critical engagement seems to, at least in my opinion, to be a much more effective strategy, at least in this event. And it, it gets you thinking in terms of, you know, the use of popular culture in general, music, events like this in general, in order to also try to make a more political or normative standpoint. Actually, engagement seems to be a much more attractive option. As far as the reception, I agree with Ahmad, it's very hard to tell what people actually understood. But the intriguing thing for me here is that when we talk about global reception, it's really not clear who we want to look at, who's, who the target audience is. Mm. Are we going to change the minds of people who were extremely negative about Israel to begin with? You know, I don't think anyone thought this is possible. Probably didn't happen. Probably the most interesting group that would be worth exploring, and maybe these are some of our listeners, I don't know, are people who actually don't know much about Israel, don't care that much about politics. They've read some negative press about Israel. They don't have any stakes in this. And then it's interesting to see what this type of exposure, you know, that suddenly they have some screen time to see these, you know, the postcards from different parts of Israel. They see these cool beach parties around the competition and whether that in any way makes them at least more positive when they think about Israel or more critical when they read the news. These are really important questions, but mm. the fact is that governments, the government of Israel, and I think other governments as well, feel that this is at least worth exploring. So no one, I think, actually really examines the direct impact of this because it's so difficult. It's so yes. But uh, in the minds of decision makers, this is an issue that is worth pursuing. So there's this assumption that this makes a difference probably for that specific group that's like in between, not the ones that, to begin with, love Israel, whatever it does, not to the ones who really, really dislike Israel and have very strong convictions, but to the probably, you know, majority of world population that's like just in between there. And I mean, when you've got an audience, as you've said, of 180 million people tuning in, it's an opportunity. I mean, you can't know for sure that it's going to change anything, but how often does that come along? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such a nice, uh, I'm not going to say relief, but I just mean it's just nice to talk about something different other than uh, <laughs> coronavirus, which we've been covering for weeks. So thank you so much. And well, I think we're going to leave it there. Galia and Nama's article in International Affairs is titled The Multi-Level Identity Politics of the 2019 Eurovision Song Contest. And you can download it now. I absolutely recommend a read. It's very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. And yeah, see you soon. Thanks, Ben. Thank Stay safe. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Fascinating stuff. And a double episode. Eurovision memories. Oh, I'm not that old, Ben. Um, <laughs> when they talked about no, Box Fizz, were you like, oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> I remember that. I was there. <laughs> Uh, who has been your favourite Eurovision entrance recently? Eurovision entrance. Well, obviously, as we mentioned, uh, I mean, the Iceland entrant from this year oh God. was yeah. Totsamosh. I absolutely love it. I think I it's fantastic. I love it as a song. It's a bloody cracking song, like, yeah. just in itself. And it I really love the music great, writing. How they, how they look kind of awkward 
and atypical as pop stars. And he's six and for eight. Six for eight, exactly. Yeah, so I like that. He's like a proper Viking. A proper Viking. So I like that. Yeah. I also, I think, was it Iceland or was it Norway? Or maybe it was, it was a Scandinavian country a few years ago who did Hard Rock Hallelujah and they were all like dressed as like demons and there were like lasers yes. coming out of their guitars and stuff. That was insane. Blew my they were mind. phenomenal. Well, that's all we've got time for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another set of interviews. Do follow us on Twitter. And if you felt like, rating or reviewing us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, we would be very grateful. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.